You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You're listening to the CRX Podcast. The CRX Podcast provides an added benefit for healthcare professionals and readers of the CRX Magazine, a leader in reliable information and news about medical cannabis. The CRX Podcast will provide the latest discussions about cannabinoid products as part of a patient's treatment plans and deliver the latest education about medical cannabis for pharmacists, physicians, and innovative healthcare providers. Hello, welcome to the CRX Podcast. This is Joseph Friedman, pharmacist and moderator for what's going to be a very interesting session today based on the article that was in the CRX magazine, the 2021 winter edition called Arrested Development. And, um, you know, one thing that I love to do instead of just, you know, introducing my guests and telling you all about them is have them spend a minute or two and introduce themselves to set up the platform for the questions. So um, we have two guests today. We've got Chris Halzer, who's an attorney in Denver, uh, very involved in the cannabis industry uh, from a legal standpoint. And we've got Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, who has written books and uh, attends um, many conventions and is a, 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 a speaker and, and, is, and is just out there in a big way and we're just thrilled to have Dr. Bonnie Goldstein on this as well. So, Dr. Bonnie, uh, why don't you go ahead and, and tell the tell the audience about you? Thanks, Joe. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I am a California licensed physician for thirty years. The last thirteen years, I have been uh, a cannabis specialist, and because of my background in pediatrics, which is what I trained in, um, I have focused on treating children with pediatric epilepsy autism, cancer, and other serious and chronic medical conditions. I've seen over 18,000 patients uh, over the past 13 years, including uh, over 1,000 children, which I think is actually the largest pediatric practice um, globally. And I have a new book out called Cannabis is Medicine, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And um, I spend a lot of time educating people about the endocannabinoid system and how to use cannabis as medicine. Thank you, Dr. Bonnie. And and Chris, let's hear about you. Well, Joseph, uh, my name is Chris Helser, and I am a Colorado attorney. Uh, I was a, I'm a criminal attorney by background. I spent 14 years as a prosecutor. Uh, I currently practice criminal defense in the Denver metro area. And my start in the marijuana world was a bit unique. Colorado has a reputation as somewhat being the, the grandfather uh, of legal marijuana. Now, that's not actually true. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, state of California, actually launched medical marijuana way back in the mid-90s. But Colorado was really the first state that tried to create a a state-regulated bureaucracy around it. And uh, I was kind of there on the front lines of it uh, and ultimately developed an expertise uh, in lots of different aspects of legal marijuana, marijuana marijuana-impaired driving, And I've spent close to a decade traveling the country doing lectures on a whole wide variety of topics. Very good. Well, thank you. Well, let's let's just jump right into this. And again, this is based on 
an article called Arrested Development. What is, what, is, what does that mean? Well, you know, in most states where cannabis is legal for medical use, it's only available to those 21 years of age or older. Uh, and then while so, some states allow for children of any age to have access to medical cannabis if they have a qualifying condition, it's difficult to find a qualified physician to make that recommendation. And so this article is really about cannabis use in, in adolescence. And so uh, Bonnie Johnson wrote this article. And since she did write this article on arrested development, um, she indicates that there's been virtually no reset research on the topic. Um, so what's the evidence or the basis of the understanding that cannabis is harmful for, te for teens? And, and Dr. Bonnie, you want to go ahead and, and, and take that one? Sure. Thanks, Joe. Um, so actually, there is research, but the big problem is that it's conflicting. So you've got research that shows that there's harm and research that shows that there's no harm. So it's very hard to sort it out, sort it out. And remember, just because an article gets published doesn't mean it's the absolute truth. There could be a lot of flaws. If you only study three people, then you have information on three people. Certainly does not reflect a population, right? The other thing that's hard about research in this field is it's very hard to isolate one variable, like let's say cannabis use in ages 12 to 18, when you've got so many other uh, variables at play when during this developing brain uh, time. You've got genetics, you've got, is there a diet? Um, there's even evidence to show, of course, that childhood maltreatment and cannabis may uh, equal some problems. So um, it's very, very hard to isolate out uh, cannabis use. Now, if you'll give me a little leeway here to just start off with, um, you know, medical school, before you can understand disease, you have to understand uh, what, what's normal, what's considered healthy, right? So let's understand what's happening first in a developing teen's brain. Um, remember, there's two times where the brain is growing tremendously. One, of course, is... Uh, during um, fetal development, and the other time is during adolescent uh, brain development. And what happens is the teenage brain has this increased sensitivity to changes and um, environmental exposures. And once the brain is more fully developed, it's not nearly as sensitive. And then additionally, while that's all going on, you have to have a normally functioning endocannabinoid system. Uh, in order to have normal brain development. It is part and parcel of normal brain development. And why is that? Well, because the endocannabinoid system influences neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals in our brain, like dopamine and serotonin, many others. And by influencing how the neurotransmitters are flowing, it the endocannabinoid system helps kind of direct or helps what I call lay down the train tracks to promote proper like circuitry and brain growth. And if you think about that, if your endocannabinoid system is functioning normally, you should have quote normal brain development. But what if your endocannabinoid system is not functioning well? Okay. And that's what we are determining as an underlying cause in many teenagers that I see in my practice who have chronic and serious illness. So we remember, we have to separate medical use for those patients who have, or uh, teenagers that may have an underlying endocannabinoid system disorder, okay, versus the teenager who takes it upon themselves to just use cannabis willy-nilly, okay? They're two 
separate things. It must be separated. It must be, because if you lump it all together, you're going to either harm those patients who are uh, need it medically, or there's going to be uh, harm to others. So I, I think one of the important things too, is to look in totality at what the science has shown so far in the research that has been done. And so it's pretty clear cut that chronic heavy use, I mean, very heavy use of, especially with higher potency THC in those who are genetically susceptible, meaning as a, an adolescent who may have some underlying predisposition for let's say mental illness, that um, chronic heavy use, especially with higher potency, may be associated with onset of psychosis, increased risk of anxiety as an adult, impulsivity. There's even a, some evidence of lower IQ, memory issues, poor executive function. But then, and you've got a whole slew of studies that show that. But then you have, and again, they don't tease out all the variables, but they try. Um, there's a recent study of almost 2,000 twins that found that actually, and again, when you're doing twin studies, you've got the genetics. You're able to compare one human with another human because they have similar genetics. They actually found that lower IQ and poor executive function were more likely due to familial background, not cannabis. So I'm just finding it very hard to always come to a conclusion. But look, this is what I wrote in my book. If your brain is functioning well and you're a teenager, and it's um, and there's no need for intervention with medicine. Avoid cannabis. Delay use of onset until after the age of 18, and actually after 21 would be even better. If you are an ill teenager who may have an underlying endocannabinoid dysfunction or disorder, you should have access to medical cannabis and a physician who can help you with that. It should not be self-medicating. Well, that that all sounds like it makes a ton of sense, uh, Dr. Bonnie, and and you know. You know, perhaps maybe, you know, this article says, you know, why don't you wait until you're 25 years old before you start using cannabis? You know, and that's, you know, probably when most people are working on their postdoctorate thesis and things like that. So that's probably a good time to increase your brain function at that point. I'm just being funny here. But but Chris, do you have any comments about, you know, that first question? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, what we have to understand is that the legalization of marijuana, whether you consider it medical or recreational, is one of the most unique legal questions which impacts the science, the medicine that goes around it. And the reason why is even right now in 2021, where we have now almost 17 states that have recreational marijuana, and it seems like we've we've just added a few in recent weeks, that it still remains a crime at the federal level in the United States. And Therefore, what has happened is we've created this legal subset for a drug. And in many ways, from a policy standpoint, we have rolled it out as medicine when, in fact, it hasn't gone through a lot of the formal channels that we otherwise would with other drugs. Much of what you pick up at the pharmacy has gone through the Federal Drug Administration. It's gone through drug trials where they not only test on animals and humans, but placebo effect and control groups. And so I think what's happening right now is we have a drug that is very complex. It can affect 
multiple aspects of the brain. And I think that because it was illegal for so long, and even today remains incredibly difficult to study, because you have to go through all of these federal gatekeepers to even access uh, what is the country's only source of permissible legal marijuana to use in human research that is grown by the University of Mississippi, and at least at this point doesn't account for readily available commercial products such as uh, concentrates, edibles. And, and so what happens is we have this clash between policy and science. And the questions that Dr. Goldstein is trying to answer is we're, we're kind of at the infancy here. We, we are collecting some data. There are some studies ongoing out there, but that federal prohibition is really precluding us from getting the necessary data to make really sound conclusions or at least build some boundaries and parameters that we can feel comfortable with. That makes a ton of sense, Chris. And you know that sort of leads me into my next question. And you know, do you believe or partially agree with the evidence from oppositionists that teen use has increased dramatically or somewhat significantly in the states that have approved adult use cannabis le legislation? You know, what proof or evidence do you have uh, that could justify your response because the oppositionists are saying teen use is up um, and the people that are pro saying, no, it really isn't. You know, Dr. Bonnie, do you have an opinion about that? Well, so of course I look to the research. So what are, what are we finding? So just last month, the journal, uh, peer reviewed journal called Substance Abuse um, published an article where they analyzed cannabis use in 46 states. And these, the authors were all very um, credible. Johns Hopkins, uh, researchers from Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard, Brandeis University, Penn State University, as well as um, I believe an, uh, the main author or the, the lead author was from um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts looking actually at data that the state collected. And basically they found no evidence between now the years 1991 and 2015. So it would be nice to include the data from just the last few years. But what they found was in 46 states, no evidence of increased, um, of increases in adolescents reporting past 30 day marijuana use or heavy marijuana use um, associated with the state uh, medical marijuana laws or operational dispensaries. And that's interesting because there are now uh, there's a slew of studies that show that they are just not seeing any type of massive increase. Um, we have to remember too, though, and I'm sure Chris, as an attorney, can attest to this. Cannabis has always been available to teenagers. You know, the 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 war on drugs didn't change that. It was available when I was in high school back way back when. I won't say when because it was a long time ago. <laughs> but I have a son who just turned 20 and. You know, in middle school and high school, if he wanted to buy cannabis from uh, off the street or, you know, underground market, certainly he could, too. So not much has changed over the years um, other than potentially. And I think, Chris, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, because uh, companies can now make concentrates in volume is that, it, you know, maybe there's that trickle down. And I'll just share with you that as a physician, I will state that when we talk about concentrates, what we're talking about is high potency THC products. 
Um, there are a few indications for those, but in general, in the medical world, there's not that many indications for, for super high potency. The, again, there are some, but it, I find that it can create tolerance and create uh, issues um, when not properly managed. So I'm not a huge fan of concentrates. Doesn't mean I don't think they should be available. It's just that, remember, I come from a medical perspective. That makes a ton of sense, Dr. Bonnie. And, and Chris, what do you think? Have you seen uh, a dramatic increase in teen use, you know, from your perspective? Well, I, I think the answer is, is that you have to look at each of the individual states. And, you know, Colorado is a state where when legalization, both medical and recreational, which which really came together within a short period of time, in about a three year span, uh, the state was kind of reeling and on its heels for how to handle it. Over time, though, um, they have really invested in collecting data. And usually high school kids uh, are, are given self-administered, self-answered quizzes about these things. Uh, in Colorado, it's called the uh, Healthy Choices Survey. And they ask teenage kids uh, about their use. And it, you know, when medical marijuana first cropped up in Colorado, our numbers jumped up significantly uh, in 30 days of past use to around 25%. Um, interestingly enough, it, it is kind of, it has come down from that number uh, to where at least in the latest data set from 2019, Colorado actually was coming in under the national average. It's still at about 20% though uh, of 30 day past use. So depending on your perspective, uh, obviously a state that is very associated with legal marijuana, there is some belief that, you know, the novelty has worn off and that certain population of high school kids who have used it historically, uh, it might be a representative percentage of that. Now, and I think Dr. Goldstein might be able to address this, but I think one of the critical issues is when do they start? Uh, generally speaking, I think some of the research out there says when it comes to alcohol, cigarettes, marijuana, whatever, you know, if, if kids are starting in with a frequent amount of use, of any of those substances prior to the age of 15, that's where you can see some of the, the very negative consequences and lingering effects. I think that in different states, it may vary. And, and as was previously noted, there can be so many variables that go along with that. Uh, I do think in Colorado, we have seen some data that suggests that once the population moves into that legal age of between 21 and 25. Uh, our percentage of young adults who are using frequently is fairly higher than that of the national average. Now, of course, it's accessible here. If you're 21 or older, you can walk into a storefront dispensary and you can purchase up to an ounce uh, of whatever. And there's a whole array of products out there. I think where the, the science is going to lag is, again, being able to measure what people are using. And of course, now we have, you know, good old fashioned flour, uh, which, you know, people my age most associate with it, you know, people smoking joints or taking a hit off a bong, but now we have edibles and concentrates. So when we talk about longitudinal studies of the impact on youth, 
I think we're just at the very beginning here. Um, and to understand the true impact of it, it's going to take years to develop that. You know, and I agree. And then in Bonnie Johnson's articles, she actually talks about, you know, the percentage of adolescents that use it in the past year or, you know, used it during their lifetime or use it monthly or daily. So there's just a lot of, you know, back and forth information about this. But this leads us to the next question. There was an article in JAMA Psychiatry. And this article discussed, well, I'll, I'll tell you the, the title of the article, Association of Prenatal Cannabis Exposure with Psychosis Proneness Among Children in the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development. So basically what's in this article is, you know, women that are pregnant and, and, and know that they're pregnant, do they continue to use cannabis? Or if they ignore the fact that they're pregnant and they're using cannabis, um, what what is, you know, what is happening to those children's brains when, you know, they're, they're school age? And so, you know, it, it, I think you both have had a chance to read this article and uh, just wanted to see what you thought about it. Dr. Bonnie. Okay, so yes, and it's an interesting article. And I think it uh, underscores some of what I've already talked about, which is um, when you are, and as a woman who has had a child, I will tell you that nine months, it's not, some people love being pregnant. I did not. It was, it was, I was very happy to have the baby and be done with the pregnancy. But the way I look at it, remember, you know, your use of cannabis as a pregnant woman is going to affect your child. It may not be something obvious. It may only be something subtle, but I think it is the responsibility of uh, the mother to not, um, and by the way, what the study shows is that there is this um, suggestion that prenatal cannabis exposure after but not before maternal knowledge of pregnancy may be associated with a small increase in psychosis proneness during middle childhood. So it's, it's very interesting. And of course, there were study limitations. It was a small sample. And then, you know, you never know somebody's, you know, potentially the person is underreporting the amount of use and there's not a lot of um, uh, other data that shows that a proneness is actually a conversion to psychosis later in life, right? So we don't have that. So it, again, it's, it's, it's a preliminary study that has a suggestion that maybe there's this small increase in psychosis. And so again, as a clinician, how do I look at this and what would my recommendation be? Unless you are severely ill and there is really nothing else that can help you, um, I, I believe women who are pregnant, look, it's a nine month time frame. just stay away from cannabis. Remember the baby that is developing has an endocannabinoid system that can be interfered with if you take cannabis during pregnancy. And you may uh, have, there may be just subtle changes, but certainly uh, let's say, you know, you, when your child's eight years old, they get diagnosed with ADHD, you look back and say, maybe that was due to that cannabis use, right? Because remember, when you interfere with the endocannabinoid system, you are interfering with potent, the, the way the brain is laying down the neurons, the way, just think about laying down a train track. You want the circuitry to be um, as perfect as it can be during, uh, while that baby is developing. So I just don't see any reason to use cannabis during pregnancy unless um, it's a true uh, medical need. Um, I get, I hear all the time from young 
people that, oh, cannabis is benign and it's, it's the safest thing I could take and it's safer than any pharmaceutical and so on. I don't know that we are at the point where we can say that. And so if you can avoid, and, and again, I would say stay away from alcohol, stay away from most you know pharmaceuticals, stay away from smoking uh, tobacco during pregnancy. It's nine months, get through it. Um, and one other thing that people don't take into account too is that if your baby was born with some problem, uh, most women might internalize that for the rest of their lives, feel guilty that maybe it was something they did during their pregnancy. And I just, you know, no one needs that anxiety and, and stressor in their life. I, that, I totally agree with that. Even, you know, changing the, the, the cat litter box is not a healthy thing to do while you're pregnant. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, just, and, and Chris, you know, I, I want to you know, go ahead and ask you, you know, this next question, you know, during, you know, the Reagan years, Nancy Reagan's just say no program, um, it's never been an effective prevention campaign, uh, but what can clinicians or, or attorneys or others who work in, the can in cannabis, you know, medicine or, or the industry do to help educate teens, their parents, and the non-approving um, you know, lawyers or healthcare professionals that are out there? Well, Joseph, I think there, there's a lot out there that people don't know, and this gets so driven by people's perception. Um, just as a policy matter, they might be pro-marijuana, anti-marijuana, and, and it drives a lot of their decision-making. But, you know, I uh, after I started doing what I did uh, in response to the demand, I created a class that was meant to be a parent's guide to understanding legal marijuana. And it was part to understand what are the laws, how do people navigate these. Uh, and what's interesting about it is I've had lots of people come out to me and, and frequently they are the parents of kids in my schools uh, that my children attend. And they'll come to me and they'll like, hey, Chris, I heard what you did. And, you know, me and me and the wife like to partake, but we're really trying to figure out how to navigate this with our kids. And so I'm a parent. I have three kids. And I have tried to only in the best way that I can through some of my anecdotal experience and that as an attorney, you know, give some people some guidance. I think, you know, when I look back, I was a, a kid in my formative stages uh, during the Reagan years. Those were my teenage years. And I thought that they they tried to capture it as a moral issue. And especially with my kids and others around me, I have tried to deliver to them, you know, factual information about it. And we already talked about this before about brain development. Uh, you know, I've had that conversation both with parents and my kids where we talk about frontal lobe development. And, you know, I've kind of said to my my kids about it, like, look, and the analogy that I've liked to use, I, I try and make it relevant for for kids these days. But I talk about the bars on their phone when we're talking about cell phone signal. And I've said, you know, you're kind of laying the uh, the cable in your brain during those those frontal lobe development years from about 15 to 25. And that's creating the connections. Um, and, you know, what's do you want a five bar signal or do you want a two or three bar signal? Um, and I've had that conversation. 
And I, I think w- the really hard thing, Joseph, to understand, and this is the, the legal part that the science community may not understand, is that in a lot of these states that have created recreational marijuana, they come through ballot initiatives where it's just the authors. It's the proponent or the advocate who kind of is putting the guts of the system together. And in virtually every state, they say, well, we're going to have testing. And that gives people a a peace of mind that the product that they're using uh, has some safety measures behind it. And yet the, the problem historically is states are now in charge of testing product safety, but because of certain federal prohibitions, established laboratories, which often have DEA licenses, which prohibit such things as concentrate testing and THC and other things, entirely steer clear of it. As a result of that, most of your quality control measures are being run by laboratories that are startups entirely in response to legalization. And so when you look at methodologies and their procedures, Sometimes the states don't even know if those laboratories are doing it correctly. In in the pharmaceutical world, I'm sure a lot of people understand proficiency testing, that the state is going to test the lab to make sure that the lab knows what it's doing. There's virtually no state in the country that has proficiency testing for marijuana. So when we talk about all these things, There are so many variables that the legal environment prohibits from us getting sound results that I, both as an attorney, as a parent, I always tend to err on the more cautious side. So I'm like, let's tease this out over time. But when I'm talking to my own kids, I was like, you know what? If you want to go have a joint on your 25th birthday, knock yourself out. But until then, let's be cautious. That's that's a great answer, Chris. And you know, Dr. Bonnie, you know, I know you get up in front of a lot of, you know, doctors when you give presentations, and I'm sure you get up in front of doctors that are just, you know, they're they're sitting there with their arms crossed, you know, with 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 a look of scowl on their face. So how do you deal with those healthcare professionals that just don't get it? Right. Well, so. Just to make a comment about what Chris has talked about, I agree, you must have a conversation with your children if you're a parent, Um, but I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm gonna tell you, you do not wanna talk, like if you're having a sex talk, are you gonna talk to your 15 year old with the hormones raging? No, you need to lay the foundation much earlier. I encourage all parents to have a conversation with their children when they're between ages six and eight. All kids go to, you know, most kids go to school, they're here about cannabis. My, uh, my son, when he was eight years old, came home from school and said, what's weed? Okay. And I had to have a conversation with him. I don't want him learning from, you know, somebody's 15 year old brother at school or sister. I want him to learn from me so that I can lay that foundation um, so that he can understand, you know, the ramifications of using cannabis as a teenager. And remember, you know, Chris even mentioned this. Think about the mis- mixed messages that kids are getting. Don't take cannabis, but by the way, by the way, it's legalized. Like they, and remember, they all have phones these days, so they're all aware of what's going on in the world. We have to start young in order for teenagers to make informed decisions. I love Chris's um, analogy with the cell phone. 
that's an easy, very relevant analogy for teenagers, but I would even start younger. I think age starting at six, age six, age eight, that's when they, we talk about, um, you should be educating your children on, you know, how babies are made, uh, sex education, and also um, education about substance, substance abuse and substance use. One of the things to couch with, with um, patients and what I tell doctors, going back to your question, Joseph, is that there is a huge difference between recreational use or abuse or misuse and medical use. I am not treating, I do not give medical cannabis recommendations to just anybody that walks in the door. It is, I have to see what medical condition you have. I have to decide whether or not cannabis may help you with your medical condition. Um, and it, there has, and I am finding that a lot of people, even the, some of the most brilliant minds that we have in our society, have difficulty separating recreational adult use or teenage, you know, misuse and abuse with medical use. There's a complete difference. We do it with opiates. We can separate. We should be able to separate with cannabis. So it's in, and the way I I couch that conversation with the child is if you were sick. If you needed this as a medicine, then we would go to a doctor and we would get medical help appropriately, which is also teaching your child to advocate for their own health. But if you are not sick, and this is what I told my son, you have a really good brain. You're well. You don't need to use it. Wait until your brain is fully developed before you touch it. Give your brain a chance, as I'm going to steal Chris's analogy, to have the five bars that's it's it's such a great way to uh, put it to teenagers or to young to to children. You and again, once teenagers and I mean you guys were teenagers just as I was. It's very hard to tell teenagers anything, right? They they kind of have this, uh, you know, I know better than you type, and they have this sen- uh, you know kind of um, distorted sense of of mortality and morbidity. So it's important to plant the seed early. I agree, and and so we're we're closing in on um, you know this this great um, exchange. But what I'd like to do at this point is just you know ask you, Chris, if you have any parting words, and how can people get a hold of you if if they'd like to reach out? Well, thanks, Joseph. I look. This is a conversation that needs to be happening across multiple disciplines, and I think that for a lot of people. You need to walk into it with an open mind and listen to not only what what the science is telling us, but also with the recognition that we have a lot more to learn. And as the legal landscape changes, uh, there's going to this is going to be going on for decades as we try and understand this. Taking a drug that was entirely illegal for about 70 years and then within a short period of time making it commercially available has a lot of broad ripples Uh, if you guys want to get a hold of me reach out to me in my email address it is chris c-h-r-i-s at understanding420.com thanks for having me joseph thank you chris and and dr bonnie how about how about parting words and uh, how can we get a hold of you if if we need to 
Um, great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, parting words is just, um, we uh, again, going back to the, the one thing that I wish I could drive home to everybody, it would make it so much easier is to step is, although it is like Chris was saying in Colorado, a kind of recreational and medical kind of all came together. They really are separate uh, creatures the same way that somebody with type one diabetes requires insulin. Well, I can't give that insulin to just anybody off the street because that could kill them. Um, not that cannabis is, is dangerous in that way, but uh, we must separate medical and um, kind of recreational adult use. And again, adolescent misuse and abuse. They're, they are different conversations. And um, it, to me, as again, working in the medical field, I have seen uh, really no harm, especially under med my medical supervision, as well as many of my colleagues who are doing the same thing that I'm doing. What I'm seeing is a tremendous potential for the medicinal benefits of cannabis changing uh, people's quality of lives for the better. And so again, med uh, medical use and even self-medicating are very different. And it's very important that people realize that. Uh, the way to reach me is just to go to my website, cannacenters.com, C-A-N-N-A-C-E-N-T-E-R-S.com. And there's a contact page and that gets to my office uh, if anybody has any questions. Thank you, Dr. Bonnie. Uh, this has been a wonderful exchange, good conversation, having legal and medicine, you know, in, in one, um, one uh, podcast. And uh, again, this is Joseph Friedman with the CRX podcast, signing off for now. Look for us for the next uh, exciting episode when we'll be discussing uh, something that's going to be coming out in the spring issue of the CRX magazine. I don't know what, the, what that topic is going to be yet, but it's coming soon. Thank you very much, everybody. To find all the episodes from the CRX podcast, go to crxpodcast.com. To learn more about the latest advancements in medical cannabis, visit crxmag.com. That's crxmag.com. Thanks for listening.